And good morning, everybody. Well, it's actually afternoon. It feels like morning because I'm tired. But anyway, this is the By Joe Show for Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. Giovanni McGuire is back with his commentary. Um, there is really so much going on over, you know, uh, in the war in the Middle East. Um, there's just so many interesting informative, to-the-point articles that I can't resist a little bit more commentary on the subject. So that will be the subject of today's show. Um, I will have to make a correction because yesterday I thought or I claimed that um, that Israel and Jordan had uh, come to a peace agreement back in the old days with Jimmy Carter, late 70s. That was not true. That came about in 1994 um, when they had negotiations um, and they've had peace for about three decades. But um, yeah, that was a uh, that was an agreement between the old King Hussein and of Jordan and um, Rabin from Israel. So, but that's lasted 30 years, so that's something to be celebrated. And um, another thing that should be celebrated is uh, a wonderful documentary around PBS that I saw last night and saw the rest of it this morning. It's a three-hour documentary in three parts called A Town Called Victoria. And um, I would say, wow, this thing is quite quite a beautiful piece and one of the main themes of course is uh, Islamophobia and the uh, story hinges around the act of somebody a young person going in and burning down a, a mosque in the town and uh, all the fallout from that and uh, I would say it's it's just a really brilliant documentary um, definitely get you uh, your emotions churning and um, I think it's quite brilliant. So it, as if in, on cue, this is a documentary that is very, very relevant now because of its theme. And uh, it's a beautiful movie because it, uh, although it's a horrific event uh, that's at the center of it, 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 it does send a pretty hopeful message. Um, you know, with some major caveats, of course, but, um, wow, if you're feeling really desperate about the state of affairs in Gaza right now, um, this documentary will go a long way into at least giving you some amount of hope that, you know, things can be worked out, and, uh, you know, the good guys can kind of come out on top, and, um, but, uh, it's it's really a beautiful movie, so I would I would definitely recommend it, um, and you can stream it right now on on the PBS app. But as for today, totally different situation because you can see what's happening. Court of public opinion is very rapidly turning against Israel, the Israeli government that is, um, and its actions. And uh, you know, right now they've got one of the major hospitals, the major hospital 
and Gaza City surrounded. They're going in, and uh, that's going to be quite a bloodbath for a variety of reasons. Um, but there's still this idea that you can bomb a hospital if there are military elements within it. Okay, so if that's your logic, then you could pretty much bomb every single hospital, certainly in Washington, D.C. You know, they're not, you know, lobbing bobs of people, but they have military personnel in there. Um, you know, I'd be very careful with that argument that it's okay to bomb a hospital because there are military personnel. Now, there's a little more than military personnel. That is true. Um, but uh, as far as I know, they're not shooting rockets off from the hospital. Um, if that were a case, I think I'd be a little more convinced. But, you know, now we're getting a backlash. And uh, Biden is getting a backlash from within his own administration, which is healthy and good. So the Prime Minister of Canada has made some comments about the death toll. Uh, the uh, Macron in France has, you know, kind of said something along similar lines. Um, Turkish president, of course, is never a huge fan of Israel, but, you know, is demanding, a, you know, an end, an end intervention to this and um, certainly put, put back their relations quite, quite a bit. You know, I really thought about it last night. You know, you really must give the Palestinian people an immense amount of kudos for the, I don't even want to call it patience. I don't even know tolerance. I don't know what you call it, but for 75 years, I mean, they've, they've kept their cool. And uh, generally speaking, I mean, of course, there have been flare-ups and attacks, but kind of admire the way that they've been able to discipline themselves and uh, that's never part of the narrative right the other part of the narrative that never comes up is that you know should the Arab countries um, you know align their interests and come to agreement that they have to go in and protect the Palestinian people and if not do that then even do more right to protect themselves from these kind of tax, um, I should think that those countries could put together a pretty fearsome coalition, you know, to the point where Israel would be in danger of being wiped off the map. And uh, if they aren't careful, and things get bad enough, because this is just the beginning, it doesn't look like they're backing down, um, you might see, uh, you know, th this is not really a war. This is a very targeted you know, warlike operation, um, a skirmish, whatever you want to call it. I hate that word because it really makes it sound incredibly minimalistic compared to the suffering that's that's happening. You know, on both sides, but mostly the Palestinian people, including all the women and children who are, have been killed. At this point, we haven't had updates on the amount of people killed because uh, they, they, they can't do it anymore. Um, the network has broken down, and even, you know, these these figures that are always, for whatever reason, suspicious, you can't even be reported anymore. So you know that the death hole is probably up more around 15,000 by this point, and about, 
you know, a good proportion of those are women and children. So um, I think we have a, a nightmare of a situation. And in terms of um, the deprivation that the people are starting to have to tolerate, no food, no water, no medical supplies, no medical attention, no communication systems, nowhere to go. Um, this is really a slaughter and uh, shame on Israel, the government of Israel. So uh, one of the, I have a whole bunch of articles that have come up that I've tagged because I think they're relevant. Um, and of course, most of them are out of Al Jazeera because if you look for commentary on news from a Western source, it is heavily, I'm assuming, edited and controlled you know, because let's just take a look at who the owners are of these institutions and the type of person that works with them and the type of guests that they have on. And, that, you know, one metric after another, you find it is completely skewed toward a Western point of view. Now, you might say Al Jazeera is skewed toward, you know, let's say an Arab perspective. That might be true, but in my in my view, it's it's kind of a subtle, it's more subtle. They actually kind of bend over backwards to try and not be too, you know, self-promoting, I guess, if you can say that. Um, but uh, I'm finding the most interesting articles. You, know, you don't even have to have a political persuasion to actually find these articles interesting and provocative, and I don't mean in a cheap sense, provocative in, a, in, a, in an educational way. Right. Well, you'll learn something from it, from a very, you know, uh, from, from people who have thought very hard about this stuff and have really thought about some angles that perhaps a Westerner wouldn't, wouldn't really be aware of. Um, so, you know, the first one has a little bit to do with the, the, um, the content of a show that I did days before on war photography and whether the war photography is is really doing what it's supposed to be doing anymore, or if it's just a sensationalism. You know, I guess you can argue it both ways, but and depending on your political persuasion, you could use it, you know, to your advantage or to the disadvantage of your intellectual opponents, I guess, but, um, you know, here's somebody who wrote something. I'm going to do the Guardian um, the Guardian articles first, because there are some from the Guardian that I think there are interesting. Um, so the first one is written by Simon Jenkins. Says we cannot turn away from suffering, but I can no longer watch the news coverage from Israel and Gaza. Right now, we have tabloid television, not broadcast news, offering a ghoulish voyeurism and simplified spectacle. Yeah, I kind of agree with the gist of that, and that's what I've been talking about for a while. Um, but let's read what he says. For the first time in my adult life, I cannot watch or read the news. Its presentation makes me profoundly upset. For over a week, 
I have not read, heard, or watched the news from Israel slash Palestine. I am afraid doing this has made me feel better. I've asked around and many other people are doing the same. Now, you know, you know, the typical ostrich putting its head in the ground, you know, is, is not really the best thing. Denial, you know, to a, to, a, to a certain degree does serve a purpose. It's his defense mechanism. Yeah, and if you can't take it, it might be a good idea, right, not to not to look at it. As I, as I mentioned when I was talking about my, my own experience of watching, you know, hours and hours of disturbing footage and the effect it had on me, um, a secondary PTSD type thing. Um, but he goes on, I would normally consider it shocking to not know what is going on elsewhere in the world. We owe it to common humanity not to ignore inhumanity whenever it occurs. We should listen and at least sympathize, even if, if to no concrete purpose. The obligation on journalists is more specific. It is to supply the requisite information which can be unpleasant to collect and convey. I have visited war zones and found it harrowing. Unspeakable horrors are occurring somewhere on earth all the time. The media may have, may have space for only so much. When did you hear about Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, or even Ukraine? But the effort must be made, not dodged. And he goes on to show, you know, he's talk about the 24-7 coverage. Um, the evening news coyly says scenes are, quote, too awful to show, unquote. And then that, quote, viewers may find some scenes distressing, unquote. Yeah, which I, I think is, um, you know, a little bit of that disaster porn thing working into the equation. Um, you know, if it's too awful to show, don't show it. And, uh. If it's distressing, I guess that's one. That one is a little more reasonable, but um, you know, it's almost become a joke and a cliche when someone prefaces it like that. It's like you know, hey, I'm not homophobic, but you know that kind of um, you know rhetorical sleight of hand. Um, yeah, so. He says it's tabloid television, offering a ghoulish gloss on what news should be about, which is facts and their informed interpretation, yet it is assumed that we cannot handle this, and instead are given endless vox pops with people on the ground. We need something to stir the emotions. In this respect, television is in a different league from radio and the print press. I would say so. I don't know who listens to radio at this point, but... Um, Horror feels a dangerous instinct, that of blame, since every box pop from Gaza must be preceded or followed by, by one from Israel. Viewers are drawn into arguments fueled by heat, not light. There's no history or background, which is one of the points I was making yesterday. You can't report on what the Iranians are doing when you completely ignore the context of the drone attack on one of their military officials. For instance, tearful victims get more time than decision makers or experts. And after the blame comes the overwhelming sense of impotence. What can we do? Shall we shart, shout, march, write, write, shut up? Mostly feel sad and return to our lives, pretending nothing has changed. Or at least most of us do. Psychologists tell us how to cope with bad news when it affects us personally. They advise us to analyze it, assess the risk, seek a way forward, and take action. But that is when it, it is personal and we have some agency over events. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what psychologists say. Um, 
I don't know if it's that comprehensive necessarily, but when it comes to actual practice with clients in the real world, but uh, events of the outside world are in a different mental sphere. We can do nothing directly about them. I don't believe that. We must remain spectators of other people's agony. No, I don't think that's true either. Anyway, during COVID, addictions to doom surfing and doom scrolling soared. During COVID, addictions to doom surfing and doom scrolling soared. People obsessively monitor news of the disease by the hour. This led to sensations of fear, sadness, and anger, and an increase in cases of depression and trauma. As with bad news generally, its appeal was said to be an evolutionary response to potential danger. Humans crave a warning. Well, I mean, when you look back on it retrospectively, but um, it should create fear, right? I mean, you should, you should stay home. There must be a limit. It is one thing to be reminded occasionally of the suffering of others and of our own impotence when it comes to changing the world around us. I cannot see that relentless real-time depictions of horror is instilling any virtue. We and our children are expected to witness screaming, bleeding, angry people night after night. This cannot increase public understanding of what is happening. Only add to danger, discord, and mental distress. I want to watch the news. What is being shown as something different. Well, I kind of agree with it you know, in general, but um, sometimes you do have to see that awful image that just churns your stomach. I mean, I have to say the image of the, of the, uh, you know, I don't know how many babies were all, you know, huddled together on a, on some kind of cot, makeshift cot. They were supposed to be in incubators. It looks like a neonatal ward of some sort, and there were, you know, 10 to 15 babies all lying next to each other, um, with, with, you know, you know, poor hygiene protections in place and without the assistance of the, the, you know, medical technology that they needed, that, that, that was quite disturbing and shocking. And, um, you know, to some degree, I think that's, that's the kind of image that will change people's minds. So I think even though I agree mostly with this, with the article, I think, um, you know, you can't really blanket the entire, you know, subject with one view or another. It's, it depends on the context. But, um, wow, I mean, that was a powerful image. And uh, I'm thankful that I saw it, actually, because it, uh, it really brings it home. In a very visceral way. Um, here's another article from The Guardian from yesterday. I'm not really focused on today's stories because there's just too many. Um, but uh, this one is a humanitarian pause in Gaza will just prolong our suffering. So this is written by Ibrahim Mutadi. We are living amid death and devastation. What good is sending an aid if the killing resumes afterwards? Yeah, so kind of a fatalistic approach. And I don't mean that as a judgment. I mean that as that makes sense to me. I mean, that's, it's, it's very alarming and it's hard to feel a sense of hope. So I think this is a reflection of what people are feeling. Living in Gaza, we wake up feeling grateful every morning to have survived for one more day. For more than 30 days, we have lived surrounded by death, devastation, and desperation. To say that the situation is exceptional 
does not begin to describe the reality of nonstop Israeli bombardments, huge missile strikes from air, land, and sea, and collective struggle to stay alive. Nowhere in the Gaza Strip is safe. More than 11,000 people have been killed. Over 450, 4,000, sorry, 4,500 of them children. I mean, that is disgusting. When I hear the phrase humanitarian pause, it sounds like a farce. How can it be that when we are not in the when we are in the worst imaginable crisis? Some leaders call for a pause and not a ceasefire. There's no food, no water, no medicine, no connectivity, no fuel. People survive off scraps that are quickly running out, and the stores are empty. Money is meaningless when there's nothing left to buy. Tens of thousands of people shelter wherever they can because 1.5 million have been forcibly displaced, including my own family, and they've had to leave their homes. Most of what we do not have goes on. This is no life. Can you imagine? I mean, just being displaced from your home, how devastating that would be. For those of us who are here under constant fire, we see those massacred by bombs die fast and the survivors die slowly. With the bare trickle of aid that Israel has allowed through with Rafah crossing from Egypt, there's hardly enough water for 5% of us. The humanitarian pause will only prolong our suffering. The humanitarian pause is nothing but a small bandage on an open wound and a way to draw this horror out longer. Yeah, in some ways it's true. I feel like the humanitarian, so-called humanitarian pause is only going to give the Israeli military forces more time to do more, more trouble, more carnage. There's nothing humanitarian about starving, being made homeless, living in rubble. When the fighting resumes, we are forced to wonder, what good is a humanitarian pause for aid if the killing doesn't stop? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, let's set us let let's let's get ourselves good and ready for being slaughtered. If you want to give aid and be humanitarian, then the killing must stop through an immediate ceasefire. Yep, that sure does make sense to me. This man is an architect, designer, and business developer. Yeah, living the life right there. I mean, wow. Okay, so here we have an article from Al Jazeera from yesterday. Um, Israelis' attacks on hospitals should be investigated as war crimes. That's Human Rights Watch saying that. Health facilities and ambulances have protected status under international humanitarian law. Of course. Yeah, so here's another institution that's saying this has gotten way, way out of hand. Israeli military's apparently unlawful attacks, quote-unquote, are further destroying Gaza's healthcare system at a time when medics have unprecedented numbers of severely injured patients and hospitals have run out of medicine and basic equipment. Despite the Israeli military's claims on November 5th of Hamas's cynical use of hospitals, no evidence put forward would justify depriving hospitals and ambulances of their protective status. Yes, of course. So, yeah, I mean, Biden came out and said, well, we have proof that they're using, Hamas is using the hospital as a base or of some sort. Well, it still doesn't matter. You're just, you're just trying to distract and obscure with that argument, right? It doesn't matter if they're in there or not. It's still a violation, right? It's a sanctuary, whether you're a combatant or not. 
So, you know, some of the combatants probably don't even want to be involved in this thing. And if there were a chance for them to, you know, disentangle themselves from Hamas, you know, I mean, I think, you know, having a sanctuary with which you could do it is probably a good thing. But, of course, we don't think about that typically. Because we don't think about war from the from the ground up, we think about war from the top top down, and that 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 is one of the themes that often comes up in my presentations, is that when you have a top down approach, oftentimes it's 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 you know a poor way of framing the argument, and it often distorts you know the reality and 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 what you have to do in order to improve things. So the bottom up approach, right? is, in my view, you know, the first approach, because that's the reality of what's happening, and everything else is a result of it. But if, if you can, you know, prevent something from the ground level, you know, it's much easier to do that. But, um, yeah, as of November 10th, two-thirds of primary health healthcare facilities and half of all hospitals in Gaza are not functioning. So that's more that are not than, than are. So at least 521 people, including 16 medical workers, have been killed in 137 attacks on healthcare in Gaza, the World Health Organization said. Israel's repeated attacks, damaging hospitals and harming healthcare workers already hit hard by an unlawful blockade, have devastated Gaza's healthcare infrastructure. That's another thing, it's the infrastructure. It's like, my God, these the who's gonna pay to rebuild? You know, I think you know, at a certain point, you know, in war, of course with the Marshall plan, that was genius to not make the you know, the losers, if you can put it, of the war pay to rebuild because then it creates this this animosity going forward, right? Which is why World War II happened in the first place. Because after World War One, there were so many, you know, penalties built into the armistice that, you know, the German economy was really suffering and people were quite miserable. And, and the only way they saw out was to start a war, which um, we know is a is an economic engine, you know, unfortunately. But um, you know, at the same time, it's like if 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 you're an aggressor, and at some point, court of law or some kind of institution has decided, there's consensus that you're the, you're you're a you're the aggressor, and you're also what you did was not just, right? Like like in my opinion, Russia's attack on Ukraine, or the Israeli government's attack on on Gaza. You know. Then you, you like in a, in courts of law, you know, you got to pay the other person's attorney fees, right? In, in a sense, so it'd be it would make sense that after all is done, Russia would have to rebuild Ukraine, right? If it worked out, you know that Ukraine isn't destroyed. Number one, but the same here, you know, Israel should have to rebuild Gaza, right? Not the Palestinian people or the greater, um, you know the greater world. Um, I think it'd be generous if, the, if, the, if they did that, but, and it would be wise, just like the Marshall Plan was. But uh, I don't know. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's something that's never really addressed, of course, until after the fact.
So, yeah. Found that Israeli forces struck the Indonesian hospital multiple times between October 7th and the 28th, killing at least two civilians. The International Eye Hospital was struck repeatedly and completely destroyed on October 10th or 11th. I mean, come on. The Turkish-Palestinian Friendship Hospital was forced to close on November 1st. A man and child were injured after repeated attacks on Al-Quds Hospital. Israeli forces struck well-marked ambulances on several occasions. These ongoing attacks are not isolated. This is all from the Human Rights Watch report. Israeli forces have also carried out scores of strikes, damaging several other hospitals across Gaza. Yeah. Been intentionally directing attacks against medical units and transport is prohibited as a war crime under the ICC's Rome Statute. I mean, all the legal stuff backs it up. Israel claims that Hamas fighters set up command centers beneath hospitals like Al Shifa and the Indonesian hospital. Claims Hamas and the hospital staff deny. These claims are contested. It doesn't even matter if they're contested. I mean, that's a don't fall for that argument. So they demand that these attacks stop. So that's Human Rights Watch. We should listen to them. Here's an article about U.S. President Biden sued for complicity in Israel's genocide in Gaza. Federal complaint calls for an end to the U.S.'s $3.8 billion in annual military support to Israel. Yep. Yep. Southern President is named um, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. Accuses them of failure to prevent and complicity in the Israeli government's unfolding genocide. New York, New York Civil Liberties Group, the Center for Constitutional Rights, filed a suit on behalf of Palestinian human rights organizations, Palestinian Gaza, and U.S. citizens with relatives in the besieged enclave. Yeah, so this is not necessarily an intellectual exercise. Um, probably won't come to much. But uh, because we know the presidents and these people who are high up are basically immune to any kind of legal action, um, whether it's national, international, or by aliens. Um, so numerous Israeli governmental leaders have expressed clear genocidal intentions and deployed dehumanizing characterizations of Palestinians, including human animals. CCR wrote in the, in the introduction to its complaint, said those statements of intent when combined with the mass killing of Palestinians reveal evidence of an unfolding crime of genocide. Well, I would, you know, say that's probably true. Numerous legal scholars, rights groups, and humanitarians have also caused is Israel's actions in Gaza genocide. Yeah, so, keeps going on. Um, what else? Yeah, I keep saying they have a significant responsibility under customary international law, under federal law, to prevent this genocide, to stop supporting this genocide. Every step of the way, every opportunity they have failed, I would say that's pretty, 
pretty accurate. They've continued to provide cover to Israel. They have continued to provide material support to Israel. And currently they intend to send more money and more weapons to Israel. Yeah, so like I was saying yesterday, you know, the far too many people are dying, but on the one hand, and then with the other hand, you know, um, you know, go and bomb whoever you want. I paid for Israel to kill my cousins and my aunt. There's no two ways around it, she told Al Jazeera. This is talking about a U.S. citizen who has relatives in Gaza. It's my tax dollars that did that, that sent those bombs to Israel to kill my family. And so I, fe I feel, and I and all other American taxpayers, very unique responsibility to hold our government and our elected officials responsible. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, if you're going to be a tax you know, evader, or I, I don't even know what you call them, people who refuse to pay taxes on moral grounds, right? Um, some people do it ideologically, you know, and are just kind of rats because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to pay taxes, whereas they feel everybody else should. They still use whatever, you know, services that are paid for. Um, but when it comes to military, I mean, the military budget comprises so many percentage of the taxes that are raised in this country. And if you're a person who does not want to see your, you know, income being siphoned off to fuel wars... You know, that's to me seems like a more, um, a uh, better reason, right? Because it is such a high percentage of, of where the money goes. So I could see that as a, as a good argument and, um, maybe more people should do it. But, uh, yeah, there's that article. You have, um, what else do you have here? There's one called Genocide in Gaza, a call to urgent global action. What is happening in Gaza fits the definition of genocide. So this is by Asana Dell, founder and chair of Law for Palestine, and Catherine Gallagher, senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. So those, those are the same people who put that lawsuit forward. A week into Israel's war on Gaza, 800 eminent scholars and practitioners of law sounded the alarm about an imminent genocide in the territory. What made this warning both powerful and chilling was that so many legal experts came to this somber conclusion together. It is not a claim that can be made easily. Well, in this case it is. Since the letter was released, the situation in Gaza is only going worse. Yep. To understand what is transpiring in Gaza, we must turn to the key legal frameworks that define genocide, Article 6 of the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court, and Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. Okay, so now we're getting down and dirty in the nitty-gritty here. According to these documents, genocide involves acts committed with the specific intent to destroy, either in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. These acts encompass killing members of the group, causing them serious harm, imposing conditions of life aimed at physical destruction of the group, in whole or in part, among other underlying acts. Notably, the people targeted can be a geographically limited part of the group. Now, do you have to prove intent? Well, we already heard from the other article that Israeli officials are literally... They're not saying, yes, we're committing a genocide, but they're agreeing that they're doing some of these things. Um, 
So, and it's such a tragedy for a, for a population that had been subject to genocide to end up, you know, kind of being so blind to it and, you know, turning it around and propagating it on some other people. Um, Gaza's devastating reality mirrors those components of genocide. Um, despite claiming to target only Hamas, Israel is engaged in all-out assault on the whole population of Gaza. That's true, because their bombings seem rather indiscriminate to me. 6,000 bombs, nearly as many as the United States used in Afghanistan in a full year. High-impact munitions in the most deadly, densely populated places in, in the world. Yeah. The Israeli army has also dropped any pretense to precision strikes, as its spokesperson Daniel Hagari said. His emphasis is on damage and not accuracy. Okay. It's also mass-targeted civilian buildings, schools, hospitals, residential buildings, wiping out whole families. More than 45% of homes were destroyed or damaged. Yeah, why are they doing that? Many of them in the supposed safe areas. Mass killing of civilians is accompanied by the imposition of life conditions aimed clearly at the physical destruction of the Palestinian people. Yep, no electricity, no food, no water, no gas, as declared by Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant. Yeah, so they're just, you know, admitting all this stuff. Um, targeting of solar panels, fuel deliveries, life-saving care, refusal to allow adequate amounts of much-needed humanitarian aid. Um, Israeli government and military officials have also verbalized their genocidal intent toward the Palestinian people. When announcing the full blockade, Gallant described the 2.3 million people in Gaza as, quote, human animals. On the 29th of October, Netanyahu used Judaic scripture to justify the killing of Palestinians. Quote, you must remember what Amalek did to you, says our Holy Bible, unquote. Quote, now go and smite Amalek, Amalek. kill both man and woman infant. Oh, that's so beautiful. Um, on November 5th, Heritage Minister Mahai Eliyahu said one of his, his, Israel's options in Gaza is to drop a nuclear bomb. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, he said there's no such thing as uninvolved civilians in Gaza. And then some Israelis objected to that. and uh, But it was more like, oh, that's going to hurt our image. It wasn't really objecting to the idea per se. Um, dehumanizing language, along with incitement by common Israelis for the, quote, annihilation of Gaza. In the words of genocide, genocide expert and survivor of the Bosnian genocide, Arnesa Buyuzmik Kastura, that sort of rhetoric is not uncommon when it comes to cases of genocide. It is obviously one of the most important stages when you really consider it. And to hear the openly dehumanizing language spoken with so much furor in the media from government leaders and from regular people, too, is horrifying. And it all leads us to where we are right now, which is the fact, which is the fact that what is happening in Gaza is the genocide. Yeah, 
but don't listen to the people who have lived through it, right? Um, shoot first, ask questions later, and it just keeps going on. I mean, you get the idea. Um, it keeps going on and on and on. And I mean, some really interesting detail on this, and I think it's well worth a read. But I'm going to move on to the next article, um, which is Never Forget Is Now by Andrew Mit Mitrovica, an Al Jazeera columnist. Never Forget Is Now, Presidents and Prime Ministers Complicit in Israel Israeli Crimes Hope We Will Forget, But We Will Not, you know. The never forget thing, right? About the Holocaust. So ironic. But now is exactly the, the amount of time where we, you have to be brave and courageous and go against the, you know, the, the I don't want to say fascist because, of course, that has inappropriate, uh, you know, connotations, but this extremism, um, you know, now is definitely time to think about what had happened and how this is just being flipped, you know, and you become your, you be, you're becoming slowly but surely and in a less, you know, global scale, you're slowly but surely becoming the, the very enemy and, and perpetrator that you were the victim of in a way. Um, that's there's no there could be nothing more tragic I think. Um, yeah. So, so one day every year we applaud the ordinary men and women from ordinary places who are still alive as they march together gingerly to pay quiet homage to their comrades in arms buried in faraway places, where they perished, saving others and making history. They're referring to Veterans Day. The irony, of course, is that the hypocrites who led the solemn ceremonies this weekend in Europe, North America, and beyond, and who will make recycled speeches about the imperative to remember, now want us to forget. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, they expect us to forget, he says. They will, I suspect, be counting on it. They are convinced that soon enough we will be too preoccupied with the demands and vagaries of life to recall what they have done and failed to do in this urgent moment when we confronted the blatant human consequences of deliberate state-sanctioned inhumanity. Above all, these presidents and prime ministers want us to forget their complicity in the genocide we are witnessing, being committed minute after minute, hour after hour, etc., against imprisoned Palestinians in the shattered apocalyptic-like hellscape called Gaza, and bit by inevitable bit in the occupied West Bank by another so-called champion of democracy. Presidents and Prime Ministers want us to forget the carte blanche license they have for decades guaranteed to their dear friend Benjamin Netanyahu and other fanatical Israeli Prime Ministers, right? I mean, I was just watching a show on, you know, the peace process um, history of the peace process, and it was interesting how when, uh, I think it was Ehud Barak was um, very close to brokering a deal with Arafat and everybody else, well, you know, he gets voted out of out of office, and uh, Ariel Sharon comes in, and that's the end, that's the end, man, he just put, he put, he stuck the dagger in, 
and it's been like that ever since. You just need one person with enough destruction power, you know, um, you know, put a war criminal as the head of your country. You, you, I think you better check, you know, your values at some point. Um, so this goes on and on too. Um, but it's a, it's a well-written article. And, uh, you know, each paragraph starts, the presidents and prime ministers want us to forget that. Yeah, but take note, we will remember. We will remember what these complicit presidents and prime ministers and their rank confederates in the establishment press have done, what they have failed to do because decency and our abiding solidarity with Palestinians and their just causes insists upon it. Yes. You know, and I think um, this is a call to arms in a way, um, metaphorically speaking. And it's uh, it's hopeful. Um, you know, I really do hope that, you know, this turns out to be true, that people are held responsible, but I, I'm very cynical about that. I don't think that's going to happen. But it is a good thought to have that somehow this will be People will meet justice. Yeah. What is a human shield? And why is Israel using the term in Gaza? Experts discuss the legal implications of the term human shield as Israel has used it to justify attacks on hospitals and civilians. Yeah. So let's see what this one says. Rights organizations have accused Israel of war crimes as an overwhelming majority of the 11 thousand plus Palestinian killed in Israeli attacks are civilians, two-thirds of them women and children. In its defense, the Israeli army has accused the Palestinian resistance group Hamas, which has governed the Gaza Strip since 2007. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting sentence because they're not, you know, they're really not a resistance group at this point. They are the, they are the government in the Gaza Strip of using civilians as human shields. The Palestinian armed group has rejected the allegations. So Netanyahu told Biden last month that Hamas was hiding behind civilians. Human shields were a key pillar of Hamas's terror operations. Israel has, however, not provided concrete proof for its allegations. If it were true, it would be obvious, come on. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's just being used as an excuse. What are human shields? Under international law, the term refers to civilians or other protected persons whose presence is used to render military targets immune from military operations. Well, sometimes these shields are not compliant, right? It sounds like human shields, you know, when people talk about it, it's like they're doing it and they're, 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 uh, they're doing it consciously and they're doing it... Uh, under their own power, you know. Um, many of these so-called human shields people are probably, you know, under immense pressure or, you know, you know, are being, are being, you know, they're doing it under the, under the threat of, of consequences, right? Oh, and here's where they go into it. There are three kinds of human shields. Voluntary shields are people who willfully choose to stand in front 
legitimate target as a means of protection. Well, this is not even a legitimate target, right? The uh, hospitals, anyway. Involuntary shields are people who are coversively deployed as bargaining chips or as a means to thwart an attack. And proximate shields are civilians or civilian sites that become shields or are cast as shields due to their proximity to the fighting. Yeah, interesting. Um... Neve Gordon, co-author of Human Shields, A History of People in the Line of Fire, told Al Jazeera that evacuation orders give the warring party that issued it, in this case Israel, the ability to cast families like El Sayed's and the entire population of North, northern Gaza as proximate shields. Yeah. Because this correspondent received a phone call from the Israeli army warning them to immediately leave their home in Gaza City. They decided it was too risky to make the journey south amid the heavy bombardment. Talk about stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, temporally proximate shielding can endure far longer than either voluntary or involuntary shielding because the latter two are restricted to the time during which the civilian acts or is forced into acting as a shield. By contrast, pro proximate shielding exists as long as the fighting continues. See, that's an interesting fact that I, did, I was not aware of. And so that kind of shielding... So being, accusing people of that kind of shielding can just give you free reign, basically. Um, yeah, so. Keeps going on. Non-combatant civilians, even if used as human shields, are entitled to protection. That's what I pointed out, right? You know, even enemies, like people... Prisoners of war who are injured, right? You still take them to the hospital. It's part of the Geneva Convention, I believe. Um, what else does it say? The presence of human shields does not render a site immune from attack. While they are, are protected people according to the laws of war, the military assets say shield can be legitimately targeted. Well, the military assets, not the entire building, right? Um... Uh, Mark Weller, Chair of International Law and International Constitutional Studies at the University of Cambridge, said that if a thousand people were sheltering at a site that was proven to hide a Hamas presence, Israel would have to send soldiers in to only hit the enemy assets. A principle of distinction. If it instead opted to bomb the compound from the air, it must be able to prove the existence of enemy assets and to argue that the incidental loss of life was proportionate to the military advantage gained principle of proportionality. I guess you have to have something like that, but that is really a twisted idea. Um, issuing an evacuation order to 1.1 million people and then considering an entire population as a legitimate target also contravenes the same principles. No kidding. Knocking on a building to ask its residents to evacuate may be reasonable, but telling a million people that they all have to get out because you're bombing everything is unreasonable. Yeah. Israel cannot discharge its obligation of distinction by wishing the civilians away. This places the burden of protection on victims rather than attackers. Correct. And then it gets into the hospital. Can it strike a hospital? It's used as a shield. Um, the law says hospitals are protected, but it immediately adds a series of exceptions where it is allowed to bomb hospitals. I just think that's a bad idea, no matter how they're being used. Israel knows what these exceptions are and frames the hospital as being a site where those exceptions apply, of course. 
The idea of framing hospitals carrying out a mission that is outside their humanitarian duty to justify strikes against them. Yeah, that's med medical lawfare. This term used. It's rather twisted. Um, repeatedly deployed by, this is a strategy repeatedly deployed by the Israeli military and government to legitimize attacks on life-sustaining and saving infrastructure and shift the blame onto the Palestinians themselves. Yeah, which is really just racism. It's like, you know why you're being attacked? Because you're a horrible group of people, you know? I mean, if that, that's ra racism kind of defined. But, uh, yep, another interesting article. What else? This one is called, Now Isn't the Time. Is Israel's left conflicted on future after Hamas attack? You know, so this is kind of, you know, similar to the, you know, when there's a mass shooting in the United States, people say, now is not the time for talking about, um, you know, gun control. You know, so basically saying, you know, since we had this horrible attack on us, you know, we deserve time, you know, to be able to do whatever we want, you know, and we'll worry about the... You know the repercussions and the details later well that that's just you know that's 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 just i mean if you want to commit horrible acts you know in name of 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 being a victim yourself um that's that's pretty poor logic um it's called revenge and someone pointed that out on the news the other day i forgot i think it was the news hour well, it says, too early to know where Israeli progressives will land. Well, I think after this is all said and done, um, I think you're going to find that not only uh, liberals, but even a, a certain proportion of conservatives are going to look back on this and say, man, that was a big mistake. Wow, did we, did we ever fuck up in the heat of the moment, right? They say when you're in a crisis, you experience trauma, you know, other than the immediate you know, concern of, you know, flight, fright, or fight, or freeze, right? You shouldn't make too many decisions that are monumental when you're in that state of mind, right? And that makes a lot of sense from a psychological point of view. But then you add up the entire sum total of that psychological perspective, right? Particularly in the conservative Israeli mind, and you and you, and you and you think about the social psychology implications when you have all those people together, like the group think that's going on. The you know the, the sort of things that blind you to reality and to and to into good decision making. You know sober decision making. Um, you know, it would have been much wiser for the Israeli government. To react to this terrible attack on them by reacting to it, you know, in a thing of in itself, right? Letting everything kind of, you know, come to a to a rest in a sense, right? And then and then think about it and then have a plan. But that's not what happened, right? What happened is, 
the attack was perpetrated and they immediately um, turned it around and uh, you know just like uh, with, with the United States you know this 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 idea that if you're gonna have a war it better be devastating right you know as a as a response to the loss in Vietnam you know when the Gulf War came around there was this there's this idea there's a couple ideas you know the only time we get involved in something when it's in America's strategic interest which is just the stupidest and most self-serving horrible principle number one if applied to everything blanketly but the second one is the um, you know if you're gonna go to war do it in a devastating way well you know sometimes the devastating way is not really the way to do it it doesn't make much sense I mean even strategically speaking but um, it will certainly cut back on a lot of the collateral misery that's that's happening and that's exactly what's going on here in this case so again we haven't learned a thing from the Gulf War or 9-11 and uh, you could just keep going on and on with these articles I mean there are some articles on the other side and there you know there's some protests on the other side there were about 10 or 20,000 people marching in Washington but that's like you know that's kind of like Trump's Trump's huge crowd you know I mean um, the mall wasn't even filled up, whereas in London you had 300,000 people, you know, 10 times the amount of people protesting. So, I don't know, that seems like a no-brainer just based on the, uh, you know, based on, 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 on a kind of a statistical analysis of things. Um, but uh, we don't like to think that way. We, we don't like to, we have all these statistical tools that we can use. But um, we just we just we just you know turn away from them if if they're too inconvenient. It was a good title for that film, the inconvenient truth. We haven't even got into the the devastating effect on the environment that these wars in Russia and Ukraine and uh, Israel and Gaza are causing. You know the massive material destruction that's going on, the infrastructure. You know um, and uh, you know, in a lot of places, you're going to have to rely on gener, you know, uh, fuel that is generated by generators, gas-fueled generators, by coal, by burning wood, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I'm sure it's having a significant effect. I'd like to see what um, what people have to say about it. You know, what the actual uh, effect is scientifically speaking right and um, you know in some ways which I argue in my book it's a book of fiction but in Descent of Man you know we're always kind of wondering why we have to keep fighting and why we do things that are not in our interest and you know in some ways we have we have the best excuse to become much more cooperative in our approach which is that there is this thing called global warming and if we want a, a, a uh, an alien to come to earth that is going to unite us like all the old sci-fi movies did you know during the cold war um, that's a pretty darn good excuse right because we're worried about surviving we're going to think about cooperating and we're going to think about establishing the best earth that we can 
given our vulnerabilities and our deficits. So I think that's really kind of what 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 I argue in the in the book is that you know if it's good for the earth it's good for us, right? We kind of think of what's good for us is good for the earth. We have this kind of um you know we we center ourselves uh, you know in this in this drama in a very unhealthy way. Like we're in control. No, the earth is in control. You should try to work with it. And if you, that's your guiding principle, there would be no no need for war. There'd be no need for continued use of fossil fuels. And we would live a, a life that was more modest, which for most of us is not that different from what we're doing. But it would be sustainable. And it would be kind of a, you know, a, a paradise in, 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 in relative to what we have now. You know, you have clean air, clean water, clean, you know, clean earth. And uh, that's what I think we should be going for. But, um, yeah, I think I'm going to stop there. We seem to be always going a little bit over one hour. I should be keeping it under 50 minutes, and I'm going to try to do a little bit better with that. Um, yeah, and here I see an Al Jazeera article that's, Bombing Gaza won't bring Israel victory. One only needs to look at the U.S. carpet bombing of Cambodia. That's an interesting perspective. But I will forego that one. And uh, next time I think we'll go on to a different subject. And uh, until then, this is uh, Giovanni McIver. It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. It is the afternoon. And that will be it for the Bye Show, Bye Jove Show for today. Thanks for listening. Take care.